Bibles is so amazing that often we entirely miss its purpose. Matthew's aim is to focus our attention on worship. His intent is to shine the spotlight on all that was involved with Gentile men offering worship to a Jewish Messiah. Worship and Christmas go together. I remember a Christmas 52 years ago. Yeah, I remember that, guys. (laughs) Most of you weren't born, but I remember that. I was 17 years old, and I purchased the softest pastel blue mohaired sweater that I could find. It had it had these weavings of pink and, and white in it, uh, the accent, its cutting edge beauty, and it took a whole lot of effort to, for me to go shopping and every penny that I could scrape together, but that was absolutely fine with me. For you see, I gave that sweater as a gift that Christmas to a little four foot eleven lady. <laughs> with the most beautiful brown eyes and attractive looks that I had ever seen. The reason I was willing to expend any effort or any expense to get this gift for her was because I wanted to express in the most meaningful and significant way possible my love, my adoration, and my allegiance to her. For she had become the one and only young lady that I adored. In simple terms, my actions that Christmas were an act of worship. And that sweater was a symbolic expression of my adoration. So you see, like that Christmas gift, what we share with someone, our life, our energies, our efforts, our gifts, what we share with them can be a symbolic expression involved in worship. And what we share with someone can spell out in very specific and very tangible ways our love, our adoration, and our allegiance to what has become sacred to us. Now, as we turn our attention to Matthew 2, we are immediately brought face to face with the worshipers from the East. The Magi were, are among the most mysterious men in the entire word of God. They're these shadowy figures who seem to kind of materialize out of thin air and assume this place of prominence then in the Christmas story. Most Christians conceptualize them as three camel-riding characters coming out of the Orient carrying gifts because that's how the artists of our age portray them on Christmas cards when they write underneath them, wise men still seek him, right? Now, if those men were wise, it was because God in his providence pursued them and graciously transformed their evil earthly wisdom into eternal wisdom. Now, here's why I say that. As the searchlight of history begins to shine through the shadows surrounding these men, we read in Jeremiah 39 and verse 3 of a high official and all the other officials of the king of Babylon. That term high official is Rab Mag. It means the chief of the magi. 
more intense digging into ancient history actually identifies the Magi as a priestly caste of the Medes. The Medes lived in the land east of the land of Israel, south of the Caspian Sea, and eventually they were absorbed into the kingdom of Persia as it stepped onto the stage of world power. The voracious appetite of the Medo-Persian Empire eventually caused it to swallow up the Babylonian Empire. So we can identify the contemporary home of the ancient Magi as Iran. The original Magi were priests of an extremely ancient form of this mystical religion called Zoroastrianism. The central aspect of their worship was fire. It's very intriguing to know as this story all unveils itself, is they actually had a fire altar which burned with a perpetual flame which the Magi believed had originally come down from heaven. In the 6th century BC, Zoroastrianism was declared the official religion of the entire Persian Empire. It was the dominant religion of that entire region of the world at the time when Jesus was born. As you would expect, the original word magi is the word which has given us the words magician and magic. The priestly caste of men now, these magi, led the most dominant religion in that part of the world by practicing things like sorcery and witchcraft and divining of dreams and all kinds of occult activities. And they weaved in with that the science of astronomy and the science of astrology. And as they led the people of their land, they did it with all kinds of black magic ways. And so they began to be looked upon as the scholars of their age, as the wise men, right? But don't forget, all of their wisdom, all of their ways of thinking and acting were worldly and they were couched in evil. But they had become the wise men. That's why their directives, according to Daniel 6, became the law of the Medes and the Persians. That was the ultimate and unalterable law of their land. It could not be changed. These men became the magistrates of the land then who administered laws and policies. They actually advised the king. They interpreted Dreams by their occult and black magic ways. And over time, these men actually became known as the kingmakers, for they had immense input into the decision of the ancient kings and the choice of the king who would follow him. Now, at this point, my heart just starts to palpitate, okay? Because through his providential control of history, God begins to step into the evil darkness of the Magi's life. He starts pursuing them with his eternal truth and his wisdom. Early signs and indication of God's work surface when you read Daniel chapter 1. 
There we see Israel besieged by the Babylonian armies of King Nebuchadnezzar. And many of the Israelite people then are carried off into captivity in the land of Babylon. Among these captives is that young man you know, Daniel. Unknown to that insignificant captive was God's plan to make him the second most significant man in that entire empire. Daniel's promotion to second in power takes place in a very, very intriguing way. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream which he can't recall, and so his life becomes consumed by misery. And to make things even more miserable for him, the king's wise men, his magi, can't make their black magic work and recover his dream. And as the incantations of the magi fail, Daniel's omnipotent God succeeds. And he unveils the dream to Daniel. And he can reveal its meaning to the king. And so according to Daniel 2, verse 48, the outcome was this. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and he lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and he placed him in charge of the wise men. He placed him in charge of the magi. Now there's one thing all of us know, the guy in charge establishes the training curriculum. He does that now for the priests and the political advisors of this country. Since we know Daniel's story, his character, his wholehearted commitment to God, we can be confident that Daniel took this opportunity to teach the Magi about the one and the only true God so they could become truly wise. I am confident the Old Testament scriptures were a common part of their training and that the prophecies predicting God's anointed one, his Messiah coming into the world, born to be king of the Jews, was a primary part of their training. Balaam's fourth prophecy which predicted the future coming of this royal conqueror to Israel was probably a regular part of the reflections of the Magi. Since the background of the Magi included astronomy and astrology, those men most likely meditated long and hard on Balaam's word when he prophesied in Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star is coming out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Jacob, and he will crush the foreheads of Moab and the sons of Sheth. In light of their background as what? Kingmakers. The Magi would have had high levels of interest in that prophecy. For speaking of a scepter suggested a prominent king was going to have power in the land of Israel. As the Magi med meditated on Balaam's word, 
And God enlightened their understanding. They could easily have made connections between the star and the king who would wield this scepter of influence and power. They may have realized that his coming then would have been marked, it would have been confirmed by a star which would appear as a sign of his coming. Now what I've weaved together as a historical possibility seems to receive scriptural support as a probability For when the kingmakers arrived in Jerusalem, notice Matthew 2.2. They asked this. They said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. Now listen, don't miss what's going on below the surface here. Don't miss what's going on behind the level where your eyes see in life. God is at work behind the scenes, moving the nations of the world. He's moving people groups in the world. He's thwarting the power of those who oppose him, the Magi. And he's enabling the abilities of those who follow him, Daniel. He is moving people groups and world events like pawns on a chessboard, all to accomplish his purpose of communicating truth, the truth of the son he loves to those he's seeking with his love. Now, what was that star? Every year I read these um, new identifications of that star. Some have said it was Jupiter aligning with another planet. Others identify it as as, uh, many coming together, many planets coming together. A person most recently has identified it as a luminous meteor. Now, how is that possible, folks? You know that a meteor travels at speeds up to 160,000 miles per hour. A meteor can travel the distance between the moon and the earth in 90 minutes. The Magi would have to travel 1,200 miles from Iran to Jerusalem in a caravan. To go up to 160,000 miles per hour, they would have had to have supercharged camels, right? It took them two months to get there. They probably traveled about 15, 20 miles a day. I figured it out the other way. If they could have gone 160,000 miles, it had been less than a second. They'd have been in Jerusalem, okay? And so now besides the speed, this star did not simply lead the Magi to the general area of Jerusalem. According to verse 9, it led them to a specific place, the home where the little boy Jesus was living. This means the star leads them from east to the west. When it arrives in Jerusalem, it makes a 90 degree turn and it begins to go south towards Bethlehem. And then it makes various changes as the Magi follow them as it goes through the streets and alleys of little Bethlehem to the place where Jesus lived. So again, I ask you, what was that star? 
The scriptures do not specifically identify the star, but they do seem to introduce that star to us as the Shekinah glory fire of God, which led God's Old Testament children through the wilderness to the promised land. As Moses speaks of the glorious appearance of God to his Old Testament children, he says in Exodus 13, verse 21 and 22, By the day the Lord went ahead of them in the pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night by a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So from this luminary, from this brilliant fiery light in the sky, those people were receiving divine illumination and also divine leading as they were led to the promised land. Moses also says of the Shekinah glory in Exodus 16.10, there was the glory of the Lord appearing in that cloud. That fiery cloud pointed to the actual presence of God dwelling with his people. The word Shekinah actually simply means to dwell. So the appearance of that fiery luminary in the sky meant that God... Them and he was leading them. It means to me that that star, that fiery luminary that the Magi saw in the sky, it means to me that that was the Shekinah of glory fire of God leading more people that he had loved for eternity. For once again, God's chosen people were receiving what? Divine leading and divine illumination as they were led through the desert wilderness again, now of Iran and then of Israel to the little place called Bethlehem, a place where they would find the home in which the glory of God was living amongst his people again. By this time, he, but this time he was living in the flesh of the person that we know as the Lord Jesus the Christ. I am suggesting to you then that the best possible identification of that star is God himself. It's the Shekinah glory fire. Now put it, put it together, right? Through his providential ways of working with these men who had been swallowed up in the blackness and evil of this world through the teaching of Daniel, they received God's word And God has begun to open the eyes of those men to the awareness of the Lord Jesus. He is enlightening them. And through that brilliant light, the star, God personally enters into their lives and he begins leading them to a personal meeting with his son. Now, please do not miss it again. God is moving the entire world, folks, to introduce the truth of his son to these men. And now he is penetrating into their lives to personally lead them to his son. These men 
may have become wise. But if they did, it will be because God infused wisdom into their lives. But God, as he does with us, will not deceive them. No, no. On their way, they will be brought face to face with a worldly king and a world or life-changing choice. What we must keep in mind as we reflect on the history of Christ's birth in the gospel accounts is that this was the time of King Herod in Israel. It was not the time of Jesus. In our minds as followers of Christ, we think that the birth of the Lord Jesus is what this time in history in Israel was all about. But Matthew quickly dispels that wrong way of thinking by reminding us in verse 1. Notice it there. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. That little word time literally means the interval between sunrise and sunset. Simply stated, at this time in Israel, the sun rose and the sun set on King Herod. Every single day. King Herod and what he was doing was the center of attention of everything that went on in Israel. In comparison to the public attention that King Herod received, the birth of Jesus was like something that took place in the shadows of a dark night. There was nearly no public attention given to it. It truly was the time of King Herod. And if you traveled anywhere in Israel, you were reminded of that fact continually. The country of Israel was like a crown on Herod's head. And the cities and the palaces that he built were like brilliant jewels in that crown. The road system in the ancient world at that time actually helped to shine the spotlight of attention on that very reality. I say that because Israel was a natural land bridge between the massive continent to its west, Africa, and a tremendously large portion of land to the east, Asia and Europe. The, there were only... Two superhighways tying those major parts of the world together, and they both went through the land of Israel. They're identified for you this way. Isaiah 9-1, the Via Mares, the way of the sea, was, was an international and communication trade route which went along the Mediterranean Sea right through Israel, and it tied Africa and, and Eurasia together. The other international trade route is the King's Highway. Numbers 20 and verse 17 identifies it. It followed the Jordan River Valley and the Central Mountain Ridge as it passes through Israel and it links together Asia and Arabia. There are only two other roads. They're like state roads compared to interstate roads. They tied those two together in Israel. This meant that for anyone traveling into or out of Israel, they would have to pass several of King Herod's major building projects. Those jewels in the king's crown were incredibly, incredibly impressive. 
I, I don't have time to wow you with all that Herod built now. But, but folks, he actually uh, poured hydraulic cement underneath the Mediterranean to, to build the city of Caesarea. He actually mastered the wind and provided perfect acoustics for spectators in a 4,000-seat outdoor theater. Simply stated, Herod built Rome away from Rome so he could live in all the opulence and luxury of his nation's capital. As the Magi made their way through Israel to Jerusalem, they would have, there would have been no way for them to avoid the reality that now was the time of King Herod even though they were in search of the one who had been born king of the Jews, even though that's who they had come to worship, now was the time of King Herod. In the palatial palace of Herod, during their personal meeting with the king and his advisors in Jerusalem, the Magi received two words of wisdom. Listen close, because you receive them too. One is the wisdom, the counsel, the advice that comes from God. The other is the wisdom, the counsel, the advice of the world. From Micah 5.2, according to Matthew 2 and verse 6, God shares his words of wisdom with the Magi by revealing to them that the king that they had come to worship, the one who came to be the ruler, the sovereign, the shepherd, who lives in the lives of his people, would be born in Bethlehem. That was God's word of counsel to them. The second words of wisdom came from King Herod. They were the world, words of worldly wisdom. For Herod said to the Magi, according to verse 8, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. King Herod's words of wisdom counseled or asked the Magi to give greater allegiance to him than to the one God was leading them to worship. With these two words of wisdom now echoing in their minds, haunting their heart, out into the world they go, and on with their search they went, but to their amazement, the star that they had seen in the east reappears to them, and it goes ahead of them. And that star led them a few miles south along just a little worn path out of the holy city towards Bethlehem, they would have once again been reminded, this is the time of King Herod. For they would have been led by that star along that path past the Herodian. And the dark shadow of the Herodian would have engulfed their entire attention You say, what's the Herodian? The Herodian was Herod's earliest building project. But at this time, it served as his summer palace, his fortress, his district capital. And the structure would have just 
swallowed up the attention of the Magi, for it was an astoundingly large structure, uh, 200 some feet in diameter. It's built upon this cone-shaped rock that rises 500 feet out of the ground. And there it is, towering over Bethlehem. If that's not imposing enough, the fortress built on top of it rose another 100 feet above the bedrock of that mountain. And on top of that, there's another enormous circular tower that goes another 50, 60 feet in the air. And it provides this spectacular view for Herod and for all of his soldiers to guard his palace. At the base, there's this remarkable towering fortress. There is this 400-foot-long complex of government buildings, uh, elaborate halls, guest rooms, Roman-style gardens surrounding uh, the place, columns going up everywhere. In the center of the gardens, there's this huge swimming pool, 10 feet deep, 120 feet wide, 200 feet long. The entire complex was so palatial that I don't have time to describe what's on the other 50 acres. And so as the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them. The Magi are led through this huge shadow that is cast over the entire landscape of Bethlehem. It dominates. The splendor of Herod and his time is here. No one could miss it. But the star stopped over the place where the child was. And now the Magi will be faced with a world or a life-changing choice. By the time the Magi had completed their journey, baby Jesus, would have been, who had been born king of the Jews, would have been approximately one, one and a half years old. He would have been a little boy. His place of rev- residence was not a palace where you would expect to find a royal child. No, no, he tells us it was a house. Listen, folks, a working-class home in that day would have been a simple stone building, maybe two rooms, maybe, possibly three, but doubtful. Um, It would have had a flat roof composed of, of the short branches of the stunted trees in that area, and those branches would have been packed together with mud, but any time it rained, that mud would flush down into the house, and it'd have to be repacked again. It was a mess. It wouldn't have been any bigger, the whole house, than this platform. That, of course, would have been a step up, wouldn't it? A step up from the cave where the family sheep and the cattle were normally kept and where Jesus was born and placed in the manger according to Luke 2.7. Now, when uh, Susie and I were studying in Israel and walking through an open field, we came upon a cave which was still being actively used by local shepherds as a sheep pen. You can imagine, I was so excited, I ran ahead, I rushed through the opening where the shepherd would have slept and right into the cave. And instantly, my enthusiasm evaporated, for I was standing in sheep dung. (laughs) 
I hate to tell this with Ronnie here. There was no sweet aroma of hay or straw, no romantic scents in the air. All I could smell was the stench of the excrement of the sheep. As I looked down at my feet to see how deep of a mess I was in, I realized that my legs were black up to my knees with fleas. Now, here's what I hope. I hope the sheep cave where our Savior was born was in better shape than the one I was in. But what I want you to realize, it was in no way, sorry, bro, it was in no way a romantic place where royalty should have been born. What the kingmakers from the land east of Israel found when they arrived must have been shocking and sobering. I want you to be there with them now. There's no palace. There's no marble, no gold, no gaudy splendor. There's no royal robes on the little boy Jesus. There's no crown. There's no slaves or servants walking after him, attending to his every cry and need. No life of ease. No worldly wealth whatsoever. What they found was a boy being raised in a working class home. A boy of whom God said would hold the scepter of sovereign rule over life and over death. A boy of whom God said would be the savior and the shepherd of his children who would bow in adoration before him and of those who would worship him. As they came upon that humble home, as they looked out through the dark shadows of the Herodian as it towered over them in the background, and saw this lowly, insignificant child, they were faced with a choice, right? Two words of wisdom were speaking to them, folks. Two counsels were coming to them in their mind. Two words of wisdom haunting the depths of their heart. But there's only one option. There's only one choice that they can make. They can't have both. The voice of worldly wisdom said, give your allegiance to the power, to the opulence of the world, the ease of the world that's surrounding your view. This is the time of King Herod. Choose the pleasures of this present life. The words of God's wisdom said, choose the person and the promises of the Lord Jesus. As God enlightened the minds of the Magi by the word which came to them through the teaching of Daniel, as he led them by his star to the promised Savior King, he injected his wisdom into their hearts And verse 11 says, they bowed down and worshiped the Lord Jesus. 
They rejected the counsel of the world and all of its alluring attractions. They rejected the words of Herod and his wisdom. And verse 12 says, they returned to their country by another route. Listen, folks, Christmas and worship go together. When you hear the Christmas story, God is saying to you, choose you this day who you will worship. Choose this day who you'll give your allegiance to. Choose this day who you will serve and surrender your life to. Christmas 2,000 years ago is a reflection of your Christmas this year. All the bright lights will cry out in worldly wisdom to you. This is the way of life. The pleasures, the powers, the personal ease, the attractions of the world's riches. But God's wisdom will be crying out, my son is the way of life. Bow before him, worship him. Brother Ronnie and I, with all of our hearts, desire for God to impart wisdom to your hearts as he did the Magi and leading to your life as he did the Magi. If he does, your life will be transformed. You will follow Christ instead of the world and you won't even have to tell Ronnie and I what happened, we'll see it in your life. For God will transform you like he did the Magi and you will travel by a different way home. Let's pray.